Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in this Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I am Asher Panduris, and before I introduce our amazing guest, who is Jack Ferber, um, I'm so psyched and pretty honored to have him on the show. I want to just let you know about someone named Barry. So Barry is the founder of TalkBox Studio, and as you may have noticed in the podcast notes, or excuse me, the episode notes, Barry is my editor. Barry is the person who makes this podcast possible, both in terms of doing such a kind of amazing and intuitive job with editing, but also because I have the podcast edited, I think it really allows for people to speak more openly and freely. And then with the peace of mind, knowing that we as a team, Barry and I can really fine tune the podcast and make it a, an experience that feels good for everyone. And so I can't really say enough. I'm so lucky. I actually found Barry through an Instagram contact, Sarah Schappel, who actually has a really cool podcast called So You Want to Be a Witch. Check that out. And I'm just so glad I feel like I struck gold or something. Barry's amazing and very, as I said, very intuitive. So, Talkbox is a podcast editing service that can edit your audio personally, and I can attest to that. Uh, Barry's really invested in the project of living in this queer body. Each edit they do includes noise reduction, adding intros and outros, and volume normalization that is in accordance with the standard volume level for streaming audio. They're just things that you need when you are not super technologically savvy, or even if you are, it's just a real relief to have somebody taking care of this. So if you need an audio editor, or if you're looking to start a podcast and don't know where to start, you can check out Barry's website at www.talkbox.studio, and I will include a link in the show notes. Thank you, Barry. Seriously, thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'm going to start out with a quote from Jack Ferber because I love this. I love the way Jack's mind works, and I think it's really beautiful. So Jack says, the body holds all of our information. Movement never lies is the famous Martha Graham quote that always comes to mind. As a queer person, we are told by a majority that we shouldn't exist and that we chose that. Therefore, the statement is, you have chosen not to exist. That shattering effect is something that I have come to know intimately through years of therapy. I'm highly analytical and have done a lot of healing with my mind. However, it is in the body where I have received many truths that cannot be expressed by language. I love that this podcast is specifically looking at the necessity of keeping a focus on this instrument we experience so much through. Also, as we speed up in capitalism and various forms of media, it is ever necessary to bring the focus back to the body. It never lies. So thank you for that beautiful passage and foremost support, Jack. Jack Ferver is a New York-based writer, 
choreographer, director, and podcaster. His genre-defying performances, which have been called so extreme that they sometimes look and feel like exorcisms, the New Yorker, explore the seams between fantasy and reality, character and self, humor and horror. The critically acclaimed artist has been presented throughout New York City, most recently at New York Live Arts, as well as domestically and internationally. Fervor is a recipient of the Foundation for Contemporary Arts Grant. He teaches at Bard College. You lucky students, you. As an actor, he has appeared in numerous films and television series. He also has a hilarious podcast, truly hilarious podcast, called Dance and Stuff, which you should check out. And you can reach Jack and learn more about all of the things that Jack is doing at jackfervor.org. And thank you so much for listening. So, Jack, thank you so much for being here. It's really exciting. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really exciting to talk to you. I have, there's a lot of people in my life who have really including myself have really admired your work and it's i'm i'm honored to be able to kind of talk to you about your process but also about your life and your body so i like to i like to start each episode with a a question you can kind of go wherever you'd like to go with this um but if you could think about your earliest memories of knowing that you had a body. So whether it be, you know, kind of physical experiences or uh, messages that you received from anyone um, about what it meant to be in a body. My earliest, so my parents were older, her parents when they had me. Mm -hmm. Um, My mother was 43 and my father was 59. And so my siblings from my mother's first marriage were... 18 and 20 when I was born. So I did grow up in that kind of only child way. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was also uh, in a house in a sort of different time than a lot of my peers. So there was certainly a sense of isolation. And inside of that, not to mention that I just grew up in a really small town as a queer person. Mm. And so, I mean, there was a a whole host of events that were, that created a very isolating childhood. So I spent a lot of time alone and in fantasy. And uh, I can remember myself as a small child uh, playing in uh and having creating these worlds and uh you know doing the the thing that i think a lot of children do which is make shows uh maybe not for anyone at all and a lot of my time was spent alone or in the woods and in fantasy and there was something about the excitement of creating the world and inhabiting the world and feeling that physically whether that was building little bridges between trees when the river would flood or, uh, you know, Mm. like rolling down the stairs as if I was uh, free of the fog and returned to Oz. (laughs) um, uh, So my sense 
of my body really did come from a sense of play and fantasy very early on. And those are my earliest Mm. memories as well as that I really didn't feel uh, in any gender definition mm-hmm. um, because I also didn't have siblings my age at home. My father wasn't around a lot. And so a lot of the time that was spent with an adult was with my mother, um, who was very, she was just so obsessed that she had a child. Mm. <laughs> and I mean, my hair wasn't, no one could cut my hair for years and years and years. And uh, so I think there was, she did allow, even though it's this very conservative town, my parents were liberal Democrats, and there was sort of this sense of allowance and freedom uh, from yeah. her. And what I was really attracted to as a child were these female protagonists, and I identified with them. I really mm-hmm. didn't identify with G.I. Joe or E-Man or... Uh, cars or trucks I really identified with I was just thinking recently I remember seeing a movie with Betty Davis when I was really young and thinking that's me um (laughs) identified with these women who had to uh uh, go on a journey Mm. and uh and really as I had mentioned earlier I think my sort of first uh the never ending story was really important for me for sure uh but uh, through the bulk and Return to Oz was really, I thought, that's me, I am that. And Mm. in kindergarten, when I would use, boys also felt really um, already sort of, the town was a pretty, it was, I grew up in a pretty violent place and and in a rural way. Yeah. And uh, it had its own uh, masculine codes and misogyny. Mm -hmm. And um, I really didn't relate to that at all. And I remember in kindergarten using the girls' bathroom because I thought, well, that's, those are my friends. That's where I feel safer. Yeah. When I was questioned about that, I said, well, I'm half boy, half girl. And there began my bullying. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was really my, you know, my, my early identification with myself was about fantasy, play, and that's a great sense of openness, but then would be met with a lot of um, derision and violence. Yeah, I mean, I'm as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking about the what you began talking about, which basically didn't involve an audience. You had no, no. you weren't, you know, you're in the woods. I mean, this sort of this fantastical mm-hmm. image comes to mind of you know you in the woods, you know, making making up stories and playing for your own pleasure essentially and um, an entertainment essentially. And so I guess it's just, I mean, as a parent myself, but it's so crushing to know, to hear about what happens when the kind of the audience appears. And I know that many people don't have, uh, you know, many people don't have parents like you did. Um, you kind of had this little, it sounds like a bit of safety in the context of a more broadly conservative and really violent environment. Um, yeah. But yeah, that, that, that when this kind of like um, audience appears, you have to then, you know, announce that you're half girl, half boy, or um, announce your preferences and your, 
yeah, who you are and what makes you feel safe. And that, that very thing is what, you know, it sounds like you ended up being bullied about and for. Yeah. And my parents, well, open were also not that open. So <laughs> when it be, started to become a problem was when uh, I was asked to not say that. Right. And to try and assimilate. Mm-hmm. But somehow I'm very, very blessed that in this life I have a queer sister who's 18 years my senior. She really always stepped in to champion me to be myself. Mm. And uh, because there is, uh, it, it, she really helped me not be crushed and to have and, and to not reorganize myself. But also, my spirit just doesn't run that way. Mm. Um, Can you say more about have, that? Yeah, I'm not, I've never in my life, there's never been a time where I have been good at assimilation. Mm -hmm. I have been able to play the game or to pretend to be something that I'm not. Mm -hmm. And that uh, certainly as I got older didn't run with capital. Yeah. Um, that is, that's not how that works. Um, the, there is a real sense of uh, trying to get everyone in line. I, I think that we live in as a society and a house for too long. Um, that is, that has a lot of fear of the unknown. We're clearly still so in the fear of the feminine. Yeah. Um, we live in tremendous homophobia and uh, the long-standing oppression and suppression of that is, uh, is clear. I mean, we're, we're at the extreme price of it right now in our country mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and around the world. So um, I think that it just, I mean, I remember adults suggesting to me, why don't you not uh, play with Barbies or why do you not wear jewelry or why do you not do this? Mm-hmm. And I just refused. <laughs> and because it felt, well, I, 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 the feeling was a different kind of death. There is, there's a living death. Right. That is when people uh, transform themselves into something that they're not mm. so that they can win a game that's created by society and I I just I wasn't able to do that mm. it, it um how has that happened for me yeah how has that been how that meaning that state of you know kind of it sounds it's not really refusal it's it's sort of honoring and listening to what your your spirit and your sense of self is is kind of calling you to be and embody in the world. But I wonder just Well, and there is a refusal for sure. Sure. I, mean, I think that there is right. there is a refusal. Um anyhow, go on. Yeah, there's an intentionality around it. I mean I, I imagine that I guess I'm curious about how it manifests or plays out in and did play out and has played out in your adult life in terms of 
ways that you're kind of your your way of being in the world and the way in which it kind of moves against capital as you said made it potentially difficult to find connection in the queer community in the more broad queer community i mean if it, it, um completely yeah i mean and i feel like when we talk about that i think that's sort of there's a sort of macro huge discussion there that i want to preface this with and that i think we are living in in my personal experience and i think many people's personal experience one of the most, in my personal experience, this is the most polarizing time mm. that I've lived in, the time that I'm in now, actually, yeah. even though I grew up with extreme categorical thinking in this town, but the mm. way the categorical thought has rigidified, we have these huge places where it's opening, right, where we, we are getting to have these discussions that are off the binary and sure. uh, which is incredible and I'm a professor and that I get to work with people 18 to 21 who are just so much more ahead of the game than <laughs> you know, my generation was right, right. Um, and it's so beautiful and inspiring and I really feel there to help them uncover their own questions mm-hmm. but there is there is still a lot of uh, I think fear creates a, a desire for safe zones and categories. Mm-hmm. And I've always been opposed to categorical thought. It n- has never made sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, all war starts from categorical thought. Mm-hmm. There's you and there's me. And there begins the war. Mm-hmm. And... I have, or, you know, at the, at the larger, at a more violent level, and then there's sort of other more manipulative levels around negotiation or um, what can I get, et cetera. And so for me, I think what has been the effect of that? Isolation. Mm-hmm. Um, I continued isolation, a, a deep sense of loneliness. Um, uh, the, I would say if I was to do an inventory on it, the comms, or not the comms, but the harder aspects have been a feeling of deep loneliness, a feeling of being violently misunderstood, Mm. um, being attacked, of feeling uh, very separate, and um, in its darker element, confusing to me and that brings up the the bigger refusals of where uh there's certainly been pulled to just leave altogether mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. um to not participate in this world game at all and on the pros empathy mm-hmm. uh, an ability to show up vulnerable I, I believe that until the most vulnerable are free, none of us are free. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I am drawn towards those people and those stories, a sense of a larger objective sense of, uh, of death, mm. uh, yeah. the awareness of death, of yeah. that you don't get to take any of this with you, uh, how do you want to spend your time, a real thrust into uh, some states of, present moment living um, yeah. and an ability to 
help people. I mean, when I, I remember hearing someone talk about, um, I was a producer of a very famous uh, musical and uh, she was talking about, you know, when you go to make a, a show, you should consider how many people is this for? And I ruminated on that for a long time and I, I had to realize that I hadn't been, I hadn't and I don't know that I ever have made my work for how many, but who. Mm. And that um, I have always been looking to help people who I've always, and when I teach, I begin the semester saying, you come up with a sentence, very clear sentence of why you do this, because it'll get so hard. And you will, there can be these times of no money, no support, or uh, critical bullying, peers turning against you for whatever reason. Um, and so why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. And my sentence has always been so that people don't feel as lonely as I have felt. Mm. And, and that that helps heal that loneliness as well. And I think that that has been, that's been on the pro side of the inventory is looking to help people in this lifetime. And you know, as, as I've gotten older, you read those things, that, those deathbed statements, and it's not trips or uh, what people, the things people bought, but who they helped, where they connected. And um, hmm. I feel that, I've, that it's given me that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's given me some, some, some very incredible relationships that um very deep. I'm not, I'm, I'm not very good at, uh, uh, in my close friendships, mm-hmm. uh, more surface level discussion. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, yeah, it's like sort of, I'm, I'm still, I think I'm still on the image of you kind of in the, for, like symbolically sort of in the forest, you know, and that you're in... I don't know, maybe this is too much of a stretch, but there's something kind of uh, really evocative about the idea of you as this deeply kind of empathic, spiritual-minded, you know, being who is, who is experiencing kind of what we would call consensual reality, maybe in in a sort of, you know, forest dwelling kind of way, right? Where it's like very deep, deeply felt. And, you know, maybe you're from, you know, witnessing your work and, and knowing a bit about you, it's almost as if you're attentive to kind of, if, if I keep going with this like metaphor that may not even be working at all, but, you know, if we're like you're really attentive to kind of the, I don't know, like the little creatures that are crawling around on the forest floor and you're really, you know, you're kind of keeping all of these things in mind and you're, you can't help but do that. I mean, I really, I sense that you are, yeah, just a a kind of a psychic empathic being. um, And that can, yeah, that can lead to a tremendous amount of isolation and loneliness and also an incredibly deep and meaningful experience um i mean i feel so many of us post the election mm. experienced the sense of crush and that all because it, it, it did feel that all of 
my worst nightmares from childhood continued. It, mm. it felt that it felt such a deep sense of um, that there is there is still this huge choice for cruelty and yeah. the Kavanaugh thing really mm. really wanted. Yeah. I think that was sort of some works. You know, I feel that that really took the wind out of me mm. um, and out of a lot of us because it did feel it is this sense of how do we when you're aware of the, of what harm does or if you've been harmed yourself and um, and I'm a trauma survivor from childhood and that also my adult life mm. that it it's a uh, it is a lot to hold and to continue on and how do we keep fighting it it's very much where i feel so grateful that i became a professor because there's something inside of well what can i where can i help what can i do mm -hmm. um uh, how where and i'm in a system that i am in an institutional setting um and it's but it's one that i believe in and that i have person experience of helping people with and then I have that through my performance work but lately I I think more and more I've been thinking how do I years ago I met with um, an agent a book agent because they have writing that isn't performative so it's mm -hmm. a essay and a friend of mine uh, I had sent them to him and he worked for a small publishing house and he sent them to the agent and I met with the agent he said you should write a book what do you want to do? And I said, I want to help queer people, queer kids, but I, I don't, my performance work isn't going to tour to those places. And it's where yeah, many still write a book and I wasn't able to yet because it was just, it was too much. I was mm. too, um, and it was proposed just before the election. And then mm. I just couldn't. And, so now I think that is what I'm looking at now. Well, how do I, how do I extend to helping, helping people, helping others? And it isn't always, I mean, I, well, I, I say that in my very close personal life, I, I need conversations to be in the deep end of the ocean, but mm -hmm. certainly the podcast I have with my friend Reed isn't that way. <laughs> I think no. that's very much, and, and the video content we're making is very much about play and, pleasure but I also on the other hand believe that uh, to play in a time of hatred and disdain is political absolutely and yes so there is this other uh, side of me that I allow to come through there that is about play and fun and mm -hmm. a kind of um, I remember years ago I got this I've, I've had a lot of really just I, they're bullying, bullying uh, reviews mm. um, of my work. Um, and I was talking with Justin Bond about one of them that was incredibly, uh, I mean, this so homophobic. It's beyond, it, it goes beyond, it's homophobic. And from that homophobia, it's, it's a deep sense of this person's misogyny. And, uh, and mm. you were being taken to task for having fun. And mm. the question is, why should you take yourself seriously if they're not going to? And that's what you show on stage. 
is that you actually indict the people who don't take this, who refuse to allow you to be anything but a severe political instrument. Mm-hmm. And um, that was very freeing when yeah. they brought that up for me. And I think Justin's work has uh, been incredible. And I've known Justin since I was 18. So again, another person ahead of the game that is very supportive for me. Which mm-hmm. again, back to what I was talking about is what I'm trying to extend here. Yeah. How do how do I how do I provide that for others, especially the younger generation? Yeah, and and my question is sort of how do you how do you do the upkeep or whatever it involves to be able to continue to do that, especially when there are these, you know, you. Uh, some of the things you mentioned, excuse me, <clears throat> living in a body that has experienced, you know, complex trauma and con- has continued to in some ways and, and the trauma of the world that we're living in right now and experiencing that very deeply, it sounds like, and um, experiencing it not just intellectually, but very deeply, um, emotionally and empathic- empathically. How do you... And I, I'm not asking for like your self care regime, although that would be interesting, I'm sh- sure, to people. But you know, like, how do you sustain yourself? Um, I think it, it, I'm glad you mentioned the podcast and the, the video content because if people haven't seen it, and we'll do a link in the show notes, but it's it's like medicinal laughter and it's so I mean it's so lovely to and and pleasure is so important I mean you know uh when this gets released we I will have already released the the episode with Adrienne Marie Brown who just wrote um pleasure activism and you know there's so much important there's so many things that are important about politicizing pleasure in this time and in a very nuanced way. And it sounds like you, yeah. you know, have a very, have a similar um, notion about that, but how do you, how do you care for and sustain yourself these days? Well, it's changed these days. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's changed so much over my life. Mm. I mean, um, I, uh, I'm well. I I mean I haven't had any. Um, I I don't drink or do drugs, and I haven't since my early twenties. Mm-hmm. Um, you know I, I I don't I don't have a lot of outs. I would say that are sort of more in the sundry cultural mm-hmm. elements that mm-hmm. we can have, which I think are great. And if those work for people, that's great. I just needed a clarity of mind to do this work. Yeah, and I uh, because the wild thing about my parents was I was also raised Unitarian in Madison, Wisconsin. So mm. I grew up in this small town, but every time we go to the Unitarian Universalist Church or meeting house, I guess, and um, I was introduced to all these spiritualities, and that was where I found a lot of relief and reflection. Mm. And so as my as meditation or these desires to be connected to a sense of a larger universal experience increased for me, I needed to just stay really open to that. And I also really, because I'm a trauma survivor, I realized I was going to have to have this acuity of mind hmm. to work with my therapist. And uh, on uncovering this, going back, 
so, um, and I guess I bring that up because I think that there's, there's just certain things that aren't available to me that at times I would love mm. to have. Um, like what? And I mean, I just, I don't know. I, I, it would, I think it'd be so great to take some, like to have like an ayahuasca trip or, mm-hmm. or something like that. And, um, that I had made a decision early on in my life that I wanted to see what it would be like to stay, to stay mm. and, uh, to not, to not have anything, um, mm. really affect me out of, outside of myself. Yeah. And I mean, I'm also highly sensitive, so I feel that the psychic, I mean, I, I have frequently said, you know, is it, Am I psychic or is it hypervigilant? Right. I mean, because because I grew up with and I have PTSD, I I can suss out a person right away, mm-hmm. in like the first fifteen seconds. Yeah. And so anything on top of that can kind of be a real uh, gas on a flame. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think that without having that sort of more cultural level release it's also shifted what I can do for self-care into or really swung me early on into therapy into various forms of uh, meditation I uh, whether that was Shambhala or uh, where I can say that's progressed to right now is uh, I'm doing Qigong um, and uh, what else am I doing? The, right, what happened in those last two Aprils ago was I tore my right calf, and then last summer I tore my left calf, and then in September I broke my right foot. Mm. And so I also sustained many injuries this past yeah. year, and that has completely shifted my another sort of element of my being mm. um, as I. Uh, look to looking back at where I pushed myself too hard. I've never been good at taking breaks. I've never been good at resting. Mm. And so I think, and if there was some sort of break, it really had to be whipped up in a frenzy of uh, uh, what was, what kind of new psychological thing was I going to unlock or uh, what (laughs) spiritual adventure was I going to go on? Right. Um, and uh, I think that now so much of it looks like um, a deep time of reflection and to kind of allowing, which is very hard for me. It's a, yeah. it's a very hard time for me to uh, not be as active as I've been physically yeah. and to be really forced to rest and recover um i mean also the past year i was teaching and then i put up two shows and three actually because i toured a solo of mine and i think my adrenals just taxed out yeah um and adrenal collapse is a real thing and so i'm currently looking at how do i what does it mean then for me to rest and recover? And so a lot of what it looks like now is how do I, how do I allow rest? <laughs> Which yeah. sounds really, um, I don't know. I mean, it, 
again, we live in capitalism. So, and my father was the son of a capitalist minister. So I was always told if you're not working, you're nothing. So mm. I really internalized time yeah. mm-hmm. with having there be any time of no work. And um, so right now I feel I'm trying to strengthen myself back up again so that when fall semester starts, I am stronger. Mm-hmm. Go back into it. Um, yeah. And that is a real mix of physical, mental, and spiritual. Yeah. Um, I have this past year, I had a really hard time seeing any of my friends because I teach at Bard, which is upstate, and I was gone for a lot of it. So mm-hmm. it's also been about trying to see my friends and uh, saying, we're, I'm obviously very engaged with the podcast and the video work from that. And mm-hmm. then uh, what I want to take in in terms of reading and then um, hopefully some writing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... But it hasn't meant like parties and vacations, you know, but right. sort of that, which maybe right. I need. I think there could be something that is that is lacking actually in what I'm doing right now that is not about... Because since the podcast is still work and there's pleasure there, but it's still work. So yeah. where I think that the gap that I have is where is the pleasure in my daily. Yeah. 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 I think, you know, I can, I can really relate to um, that kind of really reckoning with a decision. I love how you put it, like the decision to stay and to stay with yourself and that, that that can be so powerful for, and overwhelming as an experience, but powerful as a healing around complex trauma and to be, to have the acuity of mind to, to be able to do that is, is really important. And then there is kind of the experience of rest or joy or, you know, a sense of feeling lightness or ease. And those feeling states are, you know, for, for a lot of, a lot of reasons related to the state of the world and capitalism and all of that, you know, those are hard to access. But I think what you're saying is that it's also, you know, it's hard to, it's maybe not hard to access, but it's, it's confusing as to what might, what might bring ease to your body and psyche. Um, because yeah. the kind of culturally available that, you know, within, yeah, the culturally available options are sort of haven't, haven't worked for you. You've chosen not to really, yeah, they haven't worked for you necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. It's tricky. And at the same time, I um, I don't know. I mean, this past year was so enervating that um, I think there's probably things that I would like to do, like going out to my kind of friends, but I, I simply just haven't had that energy. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, in terms of actually now having some time this summer to address. Uh, injuries that I sustained and how yeah. can I and then the injuries you get from those injuries mm-hmm. um, in terms of you know now what is my hip health like now that I had a boot on my right foot for six weeks mm-hmm. now, that bad and 
uh, I'm also just getting older and having really put myself physically through a lot through my own work. Right. Um, but I think, I mean, my work in my 20s was so much, I didn't bleed, it wasn't a show. And I was so inspired by the meaning action and these ideas of uh, how to really, how to have it be real in that performance. Yeah. As I've gotten older, I've, I'm less interested um, because there's still so many nights that are sleepless just because my body's in so much pain. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's how can I attend to that? And, um, and there is this thing, this real thing of how I love this body that was so hated. And that grew up with so much hatred. Where did I internalize? Yeah. Where might I have redone that trauma? Mm-hmm. And how do I back away from that and love it? And do you feel? Real... Oh, go ahead. No, no, please. Well, I was just going to ask about: Do you feel like the injuries, the the um, injuries you've sustained recently, or just the the kind of quality of aging, has has a way of kind of putting you into a mindset of um, blame, self-blame, or, you know, it makes it difficult. Absolutely. Yeah, right. It sort of Absolutely. activates that traumatic. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. It's the thing, and it's like one of the main things in my way. In your way, yeah. recovering. Um, because yeah. It, it only turns into, because then it turns into hypervigilance. Yeah. And a sense of, oh my God, then it becomes sort of hypochondriacal and panic, and it's my fault. Right. I did this. And, and that's all very familiar, actually, to my trauma. And yes. To when I was abused. And of course, as we know, the survivor subconsciously, that I would say subconsciously, really always selects that position so they can feel they have a power in the scenario. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And for me, I really believe that these injuries are my body asking to take a look at my life in a deeper way. Again, mm. I mean, that's the thing with, I think, recovery is around covering who we ultimately are. Uh, I think that these injuries are really asking you to look at what, what do I want to be making? How do I want to be living? Um, am I having... And I experience joy on a daily basis. It's, uh, I think where for me where it gets tricky because I'm really good at I'm an Aries moon. So I'm really good at being like, oh my God, I'll do all this stuff right now. <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to resist that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Allow myself to really meditate. To not, the thing that I always want to do is reach, 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 reach around try and find a solution, try to heal, try to heal, heal myself, heal society. And I think there's something I'm being asked to learn here about. Yeah, it kind of comes back to that, what, what it actually means to stay with yourself, you know, to not leave your, yourself and your body and your sense of, you know, your, your being, to not leave by looking outward to fix, fix, fix. And, and, and and to stay is is incredibly, and I'm just I'm really appreciate you talking about 
not only, you know, your, your struggles with, with healing or figuring out how to heal from these injuries, but also how your experience or history of trauma plays into that. Because I think so many people who are listening can, can probably relate to that, that kind of intersection of challenges. Um, the level with, of physical pain I have been in the past year has been unlike anything I've ever mm, had in my life. Yeah. Really just been um, excruciating. Mm-hmm. And I think where that comes up then, and, and, and you know, various other, I'm a big somatizer. So, but I also saw, which was interesting, was before every show that I've ever done, I generally get sick. Mm. And um, as I was thinking about that, I was talking with a very dear friend of mine, and I was going through these injuries that have been happened before these last shows, because the capture happened, the first capture happened before a show, and then everything else, and the next one happened in a show. Mm. And the foot break started when I was going back to school, so in an audition. Mm. Um, for a commercial that I didn't want to do. So it was this thing as I was talking with him about it where I was talking about my work and, um, you know, what do I want to do next and, and feeling, feeling curious about where has the performance work helped? You know, is it sustainable? I mean, mm. also my performance work is work I've never made money from. Yeah. I don't, I'm not a non-for-profit. I don't have a board of directors. I've never done private apps. And so I'm always going off these commissions, which in New York are very low. And you have to try and figure out how to pay everyone out of mm-hmm. So um, it was the thing, and I was talking about it with my friend about the work. The voice came through my head that just said, so what about me? Mm-hmm. And I was able to thematically track that voice to every time I got sick before a show, I mean, injuries. And it was where I was able to tell that there is this, there is that side, there's a, a voice, a part of myself that did not and does not feel taken care of in the performance work. Mm. And so that's lacking in And I need to look at that. Right. And so it's been a real... And it's just this thing that in the, the dance world and then the queer performance art world with the lack of resources. I mean, we live, we live in the long, forever shadow of AIDS and the culture wars that happened during AIDS. Yeah. So not only were, were was everyone dying, but we were also having our funding stripped. Yep. And when I had interviewed Terry O'Connor, I mean, but back when Terry was starting, he would get a $12,000, uh, I think it was NEA, and gone. Mm-hmm. So it's such a different landscape that yes. I think there are these real questions of well, how is this sustainable? And I actually, I think when I began my career, I was so interested in this expression of only to the extent that we expose ourselves over and over to annihilation can that which is indestructible enough be found. Mm. And at the same time, there was this other kind of annihilation that came in that I think is a repeat of trauma. 
Mm-hmm. And mm. I am now curious of how I want to, how I want to negotiate with that. And um, I don't have the answer to that. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at. Yeah, you're curious about it, and it sounds like there's a there's a part of you, or like a voice, like you said, the voice within you that is realizes that maybe you have some agency in 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 that negotiation in a way that you hadn't recognized previously. Um, yeah, I mean, for the first time in my career, I turned down making a work this summer. Wow, mm-hmm. and it was for a huge famous company. Mm-hmm. And but what I was being offered, and <laughs> what I was being offered, it just wasn't tenable. Yeah. And it it was I wouldn't have been able to work with any of my collaborators. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to work incredibly fast, and uh, it it would have been you know a, a less than a minimum wage hour. Yeah. You know, if I was to think about it in terms of the real labor that goes into it. Yeah. And there are people who uh, can just afford to do that. Mm-hmm. And, um, or maybe we're just better at business to set themselves up. I mean, here's, here's a way in which I can say I wasn't very good at the game. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't good about uh, getting together a board and private donors. And I, I was so focused on the work. And yeah. that's on me. That isn't on anyone else. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it meant that I couldn't take the job. It, just, it was, uh, I think that it was by taking another job that didn't pay anything where I'd have to work really, really hard. I, I think burnout's very real. Yeah. And there's artists who I really love who have killed themselves. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, and from the outside, you think, oh, they're at the top of their game. And but they weren't happy. So what is that? And I think that how it really has to be looked at. And I'm really uninterested in the artists of the sacrificial lamb. Mm-hmm. And yes. the way that the artist is objectified yeah. is a form of trauma. Yeah. Objectification is traumatic. And yet you sign yourself up for that while you decide to go out there on stage. Mm. Um, but I think we live in a time where the discourse is uh, lacking mm-hmm. of how to even support these people. So, um, you know, you can have people doing incredibly vulnerable healing work and then you can have a critic come in and completely use language that is not only not curious, but uh, violent. Yeah. And that's, I don't know, that's mm-hmm. pretty gross. Yeah, yeah. So you have to accept that. So, and, and it's, you accept it, you accept it, and you either accept it and you do it, or you look to challenge it. Good luck with that. I remember a friend of mine, I was, I was doing a gig that was a, uh, a little more commercial and I was talking with a friend of mine who directed on Broadway and doesn't do that anymore and I said you know but I really think I can go into this system and change it and she laughed and she said you're so naive you can't change a system the system will change you mm. and mm. I didn't believe 
that. But when I went in and did this thing, I, it's pretty hard to do. Mm-hmm. So we are in this thing of, okay, well, what do I want to do? And what, where do I want to look to help? And I also think that means pick, I need to pick my battles. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, I, I think that we live in a time that this is really polarizing. We also live in a time that's incredibly petty. And I think that I'm also not interested in stepping into the, the petty minefield. Mm-hmm. of, well, this person did this, so now I want to actually stop her. You know, it's, it's a real, what do I want to do? What do I want to change? Mm-hmm. Uh, where do I want to help? And what is the most efficacious way to do that? Mm-hmm. Right, and um, a lot of that. skillful way to do that. Yeah, skillful, exactly. And like that in- involves right now involves a lot of attempts to find ways to rest in order to be able to skillfully do that work that you are clearly so called to do. Well, I think people can get really busy. I'm one of those people where, I mean, as I said, I didn't see my friends. Yeah. You're so busy and busy is ungrounded. Mm -hmm. And if you're ungrounded, you're easy to push over. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to just, there was through these injuries and through, I had some, a, a pretty wild uh, thing of bullying that happened to me this past year. And, mm. um, and it's not the bully, it's what he triggered. Mm-hmm. Matt. And um, it's, helped me see where I still have uncovering to do about where that where that affected me early on. I mean, as I was talking about earlier, recovery is not linear. I view it as there's that image of it where it's going up, but it always loops back. Yeah. So, you know, you have that line that goes up, but it loops back. And so in the midst of these injuries and, and having this um, weird, creepy harassment, uh, I, it helps sort of shake to the front some elements uh, that need to be taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. For me, so that I can go forward, so that I can continue to move towards a life that is uh, less afraid. Mm. And we live in a time where I think we're all so afraid, right? So that's why we choose these categories. That's why we look to say, this is mine and that's yours. And I'm not like that. And you're like that. And as I said earlier, that's never interesting me. And um, because it was such a, a trauma that I experienced early on and the trauma experienced in my, even going into some of my adult life um, is there and how there's still some things to heal around that which I think is forever I just yeah I wish I could say that trauma recovery ends but (laughs) I it doesn't right and not in my personal experience maybe there's people who have that I think but it's sort of there are places where I think instead of crying over some of my grief I just decided to keep making with it Mm -hmm. and I think I'm being called to have my own time to grieve yeah. And to grieve some things that happened. 
and so that they can live through me. And um, I think people are so afraid of crying. I am kind of one of those people who can be really afraid of crying, but that's anything mm. surprising. And uh, I, I remember something that I do in my own work is I'll talk with therapists that I'm, I'm not working with. I'll just interview therapists about the work or what I'm working on or mm. what could mm-hmm. be what, what they think about these things that I'm looking at. Yeah. Proposing to the audience and I remember talking about crying and I and I asked the therapist, Well when you know, when does crying over grief something stops? And she said, When it stops. Mm. She says it's not a it's there isn't some we can't put some time stamp, some capitalist idea of and now like clapping the hands together and saying, Now I'm done. Yeah. On the complexity of the mind no. and spirit. No. Yeah. And so, in the, the host, the sort of maelstrom of, I mean, something else that birthed for me this past year was I made this piece uh, called Desire uh, that I feel that was made almost in so far that I'm looking to bring to New York. And I did feel it, it may be one of my strongest, if not my strongest work. Mm. But it was birthed out of a real uh, hell. Mm-hmm. of looking at, of really looking at these things of where does the trauma, where does trauma look to play in this psychic basement and who does it bring in? Yeah. Yeah. And how enumerate those voices become. Again, I think that was a real experience for me in post-election was all of these aspects of self, right? So we all, everyone has many aspects of self at any given time. One of them dropped to the French and they might all be trying to occupied the attention but so many of those cells became so loud all at once mm. because of the panic but then you're just in this crush of voices of let's go this way let's go that way let's go to Canada no let's put on our combat boots and fight you know I, I think that that needs tending to yeah you know again this is where meditation is so helpful because mm. right, when those are meditated it's for me, it's not a real walk in the park. It's a real kind of allowing there to be a space to yeah. witness the thoughts and to know that they don't all have to be acted on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying and very deeply resonates with me and with the work I do with my own patients. I think mm-hmm. the idea of l- allowing, allowing is maybe the wrong word, but just I think allowing is a great word. Maybe it's allowing, yeah, the the kind of these this grief to move through you. And by tr- yeah. by that meaning really, truly move through you, you know, move through yeah. your spirit, your body, your, you know, all, all of these and through these parts of yourself, I think is really, it's a powerful experience and it's a really terrifying and confronting one. Um, well, and because we don't have a society that appreciates that or supports no, that. Supports it, right. Um, there's no structure. Yeah. Both of my parents are dead, and their uh, book um, called The New Black by, I can't remember its name, but it's really about what happens to grief post World War I. Mm. You know, it, it, he's, he's looking at Freud's on Morning and Melancholia. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. you know, what in terms of post World War I, when all these people died, and we just didn't have the ability to 
it, it just changed public grief, sort of where he's looking at it, where, you know, where, how, how do we deal with that now? And where it became more privatized and it, it got, it, uh, these sort of, these rituals of the funeral, etc. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, things are really shut down there. Darian Leaders, who wrote it. Um, I did that to my bookshelf to look. So I think that's something, too, that I, I, I think we can look around and we know people, we ourselves know this, but to deal with grief, to really deal with it, to allow it to go through, to allow that shaking through the body, it, it can feel so out of control. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we live in a society that is so much about control. I think that's sort of the dangerous thing around self-help and I think where it can become kind of tricky to look to just to erase um, or to, uh, to not fully clean the wound, but just put a Band-Aid on it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is a, it's a, it's a thing about respect. Uh, how can we learn to respect ourselves enough and to, to, to allow for ourselves? Mm-hmm. I think allowance is a great word because I think we frequently don't allow much. Yeah, it's true. It's true. Absolutely. I want to I wanna sort of return to, in the spirit of allowing, return to thinking about that, that kind of younger version of you, maybe in the woods playing, thinking about what you might want to convey or say or do or compel someone else to do with that kind of younger version of yourself, knowing what you know now. Give yourself time and space. I mean, we're, I feel that we are in such a, we're so inundated by media, by uh, landscape, which just can be so terrifying. Mm-hmm. But I think getting some real time and space is needed. And, and yeah. I think in that way, that time and space can be building bridges between yeah. trees, but it, it can also really mean um, allowing yourself to put your phone on airplane mode. Yeah. And to not be always checking every update all the time. And I mean, all of this is cliche at this point. I feel a lot of people have been saying this for a while, but but you really do it. And I think that I think that also does require a kind of return to ritual of mm-hmm. um, what something you would like to do. And everything can have that level of attention. Yeah. I mean, how the coffee gets made and how the maybe you have an incense and a candle and it, and those things, you know, those things don't work when they are kind of more of, I need to do this to be better or I'm going to do this so that I can be better. I think when they actually they're down in a, a, a zone of allowing acceptance, appreciation, mm-hmm. it's a different sort of quality. Yeah. And absolutely. I think allowing oneself to have time and space is it's pretty it's pretty radical. Yeah. Um, and time and space is not, and I can say this for myself, time and space is not my phone in 
and it triggers a sort of host of immediate um, ideas of where one should be or uh, where one's not, or I don't know. It's, 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 uh, how can we detach a little bit, come back into the body? Come back in. And what does the body want? And I think, you know, for those of us who are experiencing injury and illness, that can be really hard. Yeah. Because the body seems so terrifying. Yeah. It means like it wants us dead. Yeah, it's an inhospitable place. Yeah. Yeah, when it's in pain. Yeah. When so it's then, what is the, how do we get into that? Mm-hmm. How do we sit with that? Like, how do we be with that? And that, I'm not talking about, like, laying on the floor and then doing a body scan. But maybe that's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can have such a fear of inflammation. So sometimes it'll be like, I'm going to have pasta. <laughs> mm-hmm. And shake myself just like give myself a little shake of look you're gonna live through it it'll be okay right um and i i think that can sound really ridiculous or remedial to some people but if you've been in a lot of physical pain and it had people and i felt really terrified of inflammation and what any anything could create inflammation then you know food becomes terrifying and then what a great way to trigger my anorexia right so it's I think there's also ways of let go too around some things that get really severe and tight and fearful. Yeah. So how do we let go? How do we make room for the fear to kind of also get a bit of humor about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think um, what you're talking about, I mean, is so much of it is is so resonant, but it and it's also kind of this I can hear how for you and for many people it's like a closed loop, you know, it's sort of beginning and ending with with you and your, you know, the fear of inflammation and then you take this action and because there aren't and this is a big something that I care about deeply and it's part of why I'm doing this podcast and part of why I do the work that I do but it's we have to, I think, create structures and I don't know exactly what they are. I wish I did, but we have to create structures that support people, communities when, when they're going through a kind of confrontation with a traumatized self, you know, when they're, when someone is choosing to go through and allowing themselves to kind of take time or go through grief in an ongoing way. And and it's very, and that is really hard. I mean, it's, it's very, especially if, I mean, for a lot of, I mean, for myself as a trauma survivor, there can be such a sense of, I don't want to talk to anyone about this anymore. Of course. Yeah, exactly. And then you get isolated. And then, right. bye. Right. And I think that's another thing, too, of um, the best advice I ever got was from my sister, which is do what you would have me do. Talk to yourself like you would talk to Yeah, me. yeah. I would never tell my sister that I'm over hearing about something that's hard for her. Yeah. And that might mean weaning out some friends. Yeah. Uh, because some people aren't available for that. Right. Some people aren't, some people just aren't. And, you know, so, okay, let, then let them go and move on and, and find the people who are. But I do think you are correct in that we don't, we aren't in a very, we we live in capitalism. We live under the patriarchy. And 
it's a, it's a big shutdown to turn people into machines. Yeah. That's the Uber 1% can profit from. And it's a whole way of manipulating a, a 99% of the public so that uh, everything can keep spinning upwards. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that to get back to refusal, it's really hard. Yeah. And for me, refusal has also meant, you know, sometimes I, I need to go away. Mm-hmm. I need to go away and be able to give myself time and space. And I have built a life where I have a very precious a few groups who um, will understand and will be there for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we are at the end of our time together and I, I just, I so appreciate, um, I'm glad we're transitioning into talking about um, your podcast and some of the other work you do in part because I think, um, you know, I'm so appreciative of you being willing to kind of traverse these the deep end of these oceanic waters um, with me in this conversation. And I would love to hear and uh, have other people hear about your podcast and other kind of upcoming uh, ways that people can connect with you or can connect with the work you do. Yeah. um, Well, I haven't logged into Facebook and I can't remember how long. So that's, I'm, I'm not really That's out. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I generally post about any upcoming work I'm doing on Instagram. Um, mm-hmm. I have a website, which is jackferber.org, that people can uh, go to to be, be on the mailing list. Mm-hmm. And the podcast is Dance and Stuff. And our Instagram handle is with Dance and Stuff. But uh, our website is danceandstuff.com. And we have videos now. We've uh, mm-hmm. are well into our hund- uh, well past hundred um, we've, cause we've done it every week in the summer of 2017 and uh, there's a lot of people to listen to on there Yeah, and um, the video is the Dance and Stuff show and that is on YouTube watch and subscribe it's <laughs> very funny I, yes, it it, is. there are some that really I'm always surprised in a way when I see it because it's it's so funny to me that uh I I forget I I myself forget how funny it can be (laughs) and um uh, read read is a full sage and so it's we really together have a way of being that it's very funny remarkable there's all of that going on and then um my partner Jeremy Jacob and I have been selected as a Madeline Nichols AIDS Legacy Project Fellows. So we'll be listening to the oral histories from the AIDS Legacy Project, and I'll be presenting a paper um, mm. about choreographers and dancers that we've lost oh, and wow. where those gaps are dramaturgically. Uh, oh, wow. Because I feel that we, I really have felt always, when I was 21, I was on a panel of young makers, and we're talking about how hard this all is. And this man stood up and yelled, everyone who would have helped you died of AIDS. And he walked out. Oh, my God. And that was when I really started reading about AIDS as well as the culture wars during that time. And the sense of parentless, being completely parentless. And 
this big gap um, that's happened uh, in terms of uh, performance, dance, theater, art, uh, who I would, who there, how many more people there'd be to talk to, to guide. And so I'm going to be wow. looking at um, people lost and where those gaps are dramaturgically here in the field that we have now. And there isn't, there won't be a way to ever build a bridge here, but what are some things that future generations can look towards in terms of where these gaps are yeah, as we I go forward. That. And yeah. Jeremy will be making a video uh, that will accompany it, and we'll be presenting that in January. Beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. Well, thank yeah. you so much for doing this. Um, this thank really you, Asher. Speak with you. I'm just deeply, gonna... deeply likewise. Oh, thank you. Hey everyone, just a quick announcement that I am going to be hosting the first of a series of virtual workshops. Um, the first one is starting on August 22nd from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. It's going to happen over Zoom and the topic is navigating relational boundaries with radical hospitality for oneself. So the theme of this workshop is boundaries. If we try to move away from stories of self-blame, away from judgment about what we need and desire and how it might impact our partners, family, coworkers, or collaborators, what might we learn about our own embodied needs, preferences, and boundaries? In this end of summer check-in, we will explore why boundaries are so hard to understand and enact. And we'll spend extra time figuring out what we need in our bodies first and then consider how to communicate that knowledge to others. Feel free to share the word about this workshop to people you love, um, people who you might be inspired to be in conversation with. The cost is $40 for the workshop and we'll be meeting over Zoom. You can email me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com or you can DM me on Instagram at Living in This Queer Body. I have, at the time of recording this, about six or seven more spots left in the group, and I like to keep it intimate. Um, so sign up for this one, and also keep an uh, eye out for upcoming um, virtual workshops. I think it's a really good way to get people kind of from all over who are able to meet at a certain time to, to talk about some of these topics that are really pertinent to the experience of living in a queer body. Mm -hmm.